Hello, Edgard. Hello, Gregoire. How are you doing? Doing very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So, we are here to record the fourth follow-up podcast. That's great. Glad to be connected again with our audience. So, let's start now. This is Grégoire Pierre. And this is Edgar Danielson. Welcome to Discussions on Psychoanalysis. of our follow-up podcast, we thank a city, people in that city who are listening to discussions on psychoanalysis. And today we would like to thank those who are in Melbourne, Australia. Yeah, we felt that it was fitting to uh, look at and thank Australia, especially uh, because of the very hard time they experienced uh, recently. So we just had one question this month. The question was about something we said during the podcast. That is, what do we mean when we say that patients won't be cured? It triggered the curiosity of some people. Mm -hmm. Edgar, do you want to start? Well, I guess what in part what we are trying to say is that psychoanalysis is not a miracle cure. It doesn't take away the human pain and suffering. It's a different understanding of how we walk the journey as human beings and how do we attend to the suffering, the pain and the symptoms. They do not disappear. They may remain. And at the same time, we learn how to attend to them in different ways. What people may hear when we say that psychoanalysis doesn't cure is that people don't get better. Is this what we mean? No, at least from my perspective, that's not what I mean when I say that people don't, won't be cured. It means that we develop a wider capacity to address the abyss of the human suffering. That's what I mean. So people still suffer, but they don't suffer the same way. They don't suffer the same way. And on the other hand, they don't suffer alone. Yes. The psychoanalytic diet is in fact a companionship too. Yeah, so it is actually a very important part of our work in discussions on psychoanalysis is that we have this belief that psychoanalysis doesn't cure, but it's true that we have to be clear about what the term cure means. Mm -hmm. And as you just said, we don't think that people will change uh, in a way that as part of them will disappear. Yes. but that they will have a better connection to themselves, uh, to others, mm -hmm. and therefore this will lead to less pain, if, or at least, as um, I think Freud said, everyday pain. Mm -hmm. I think I, I mentioned that at some point, or if I didn't, uh, uh, one of my professors back in France uh, kept on telling us that uh, being healthy means uh, to get sick and get better, not to never get sick. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what psychoanalysis brings. And 
it it does that in a way that I think is unique today, mm-hmm. uh, because we are competing with uh, or against therapies that are offering the cure. I hear often about people who go to do yoga or Pilates and. They do that thinking that they will be cured, like a clean slate. Start anew, yeah. While psychoanalysis mm-hmm. offers to go on. On the other hand, if we think of symptoms as a reaction formation, mm-hmm. and if conflict is worked through and uh, explored and unpacked, maybe some of the symptoms we experience disappear. Uh, is that what people may call a cure? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. It only says that uh, we have addressed one of the many symptoms, uh, or I should say one of the many conflicts that we experience internally. Yeah. And also the another possibility is that symptoms don't disappear completely, but the way someone will experience them mm-hmm. will be very different. Instead of being anxious to be organized, you will just be organized and spend a lot less energy on that, for instance. Yeah, or, uh, sometimes I tell my patients that one way that psychoanalysis helps is that it's sm- it helps to smooth the edge mm-hmm. of a pattern or a symptom or some kind of a structural pattern of the person. It smooths the edge of the pattern. And some people might say, but that's beyond the scope of the question, that all that for such a big amount of money and such a long time. Yeah, we're now navigating difficult waters here. <laughs> we, we don't have to answer everything right away, but I think that's, that's the criticism that comes often when you... I feel, I mean, because we were talking, it's a, it was a, we are following up a podcast on the first sessions, is that often people come and this is something I, I heard. Mm-hmm. Usually people who don't stay, but say like, what? So I'm going to spend X amount of dollars every week. Mm-hmm. And all you have to offer me is feeling a little less shitty. Yes. <laughs> of course, <laughs> if you present it this way, it's not very appealing. No, it doesn't sound appealing at all. But that's another way of saying what we just said. And usually, uh, I mean, th- th- there is much more to say. Uh, but I would say that my answer to that is that psychoanalysis deconstructs in a way that it will allow the patient to be free, to experience freedom in a way that other therapies don't. I would like to add also that when we look at human suffering, we don't pathologize human suffering, which happens in other therapies when sadness or mourning are pathologized. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if they are pathologies, they need to be somehow erased or deleted or expelled Mm. or cured. That's a good point. And to the point of how long does it take? Well, reality is, or at least some of the research I've read, it seems that psychoanalysis provides long-term changes that other therapists may not be able to provide for some of the characterological issues that we see. Yeah, that's what I meant by a, a very different kind of freedom. Yes. And that's what I told my patient eventually, that my goal is that they are able to leave me mm-hmm. in a good way, not just abruptly, but that they can uh, experience a sense of self, a sense of security, mm-hmm. and a good enough relationship that we had to be able to go in the world again without uh, analysis. I mean, without um, analysis as a recurring event, yes. but analysis within them. Within them, the okay. way they have internalized the process. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm.
I would like to, like I did last time, tune a little bit some of the things I said or we said during the podcast. So did we change the way we feel about the first session since we recorded the podcast? Edgar? In my case, yes. I think I've become more open to have more than one session as a consultation, meaning sometimes it's two or three sessions. Mm -hmm. There is less anxiety from my part to bring a new patient in, meaning I don't feel forced to increase my caseload. If I'm a good fit for the patient, if the patient is a good fit for me, if we are a good diet, we may have an understanding of that after two or three sessions. Mm -hmm. But I don't feel that I need to immediately say, let's start working. So that's one of the changes that I have experienced. I agree with you. I think that since we recorded the podcast on the first session of the beginning of therapies, I feel like I'm more inclined to give more time to get to know patients. Mm -hmm. I feel indeed less pressure to give an answer during the first session. I, I already started by the time we recorded the mm -hmm. podcast, but I feel it's even more so today. And yeah, just like you described, I can more frequently say, okay, well, let's meet again. And just like th with the fee question, we don't have to decide right away. Mm -hmm. We can see each other two or three times and see if we are a good fit. Because y sometimes, you know, people have a real uh, request for therapy and it's clear that they want to keep coming right away. And you don't know for mm -hmm. how long, uh, you never know that, but... Sometimes you also feel like, okay, the, the request, the desire of the patient seems more difficult for me to read and mm -hmm. I need to get a better sense of how I'm going to approach it. And yes. that can lead to ongoing work with people. And sometimes it's actually a, a good way to feel like, okay, maybe this was not a good fit and we can, instead of abruptly not seeing someone else, a, a potentially new patient after a few sessions, a few consultations, feel safe within yourself and probably within the patient that, yeah, we, we might be better off looking at someone else. Mm -hmm. Have you experienced a shift in terms of people looking for psychoanalysis vis-a-vis -vis psychotherapy? I have noticed that. Tell me about yeah. I have noticed an increase in the number of people who reach out to me because they want to do psychoanalysis. And oh, really? they are clear about that, what they are saying, what they are asking for. Okay. As clear as anyone can be about psychoanalysis in general. <laughs> But it seems that, and I'm not sure why this is happening. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's connected to the way I rewarded some of my website or some other profiles I have online. Maybe mm -hmm. it's connected to the fact that I'm being more explicit about psychoanalysis than about psychotherapy in general. Okay. Maybe that could be the case. But I have noticed the, it's not a huge amount of, of people coming to psychoanalysis. What I mean is that I could have even one, two, three people asking about psychoanalysis. That's very good. Um, on my side, let me think. I don't think so. I mean, I still get people who ask if I could, like I had someone who asked me if I knew some neurological language. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I still have from time to time people who ask me for really goal-oriented therapy. Yes. Well, I always answer that I'm not trained in that. I can't provide that. But otherwise, no, I, I still have this a regular amount of people who are looking for, I would say, psychoanalysis. But again, most people who are contacting me are French. Yes. And again, from people 
of my generation or older than me, maybe not young. There is a clear equivalence between psychoanalysis and psychology in France. France. So when people come to see and they want to do psychotherapy, I'm assuming, I mean, it seems pretty clear that we are still on a psychoanalytic uh, frame. Yeah, even if it doesn't mean that they want to lie down, but they are really always interested in talking and into getting to understand themselves better. Mm -hmm. And they're not really asking for advice, etc. Yeah, so it's a different demographic, I think, a different population. Yeah, that influences a lot, that aspect of the work. I think most of the people who want a consultation with, they don't understand the difference between psychoanalysis and psychotherapy in general. But I have noticed that at least one, two or three every month may show up asking for psychoanalysis, which is, it's, you know. But when, when they ask for psychoanalysis, do you feel that they actually mean the same thing as you have in mind? As I have in mind, yes. They are interested in understanding themselves better, mm-hmm. their inner dynamics. Okay. So it's not about their behavior. Their behavior points to inner dynamics that they want to understand. Okay. It's pleasing to me to yeah. hear uh, because that's how I have been trained and what I can offer. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that we always start working, mm-hmm. but at least the fact that some people are reaching out and asking is really pleasing. It makes me think about something I'm more sensitive to since we recorded the podcast. That is the pressure I can feel during a first session to understand and to resolve a patient's issues Mm -hmm. and how the more I'm practicing, the more I'm able to not try to understand during the first session. Yes. But it's so tempting because the first session is really full of information in a way that it's going to take a lot of time for a, a future session to be. Yeah. I think eventually the the rhythm comes back but I felt like the first session there's a, an overwhelming amount of information spoken and unspoken and then it drops and then after the therapy warms up again yes. I feel like uh, we're going back to a somewhat a similar frame but yeah you have so much information about the patient but those informations are unprocessed by neither you nor the patients but I could feel how yeah there was an urge I mean I could feel I'm more aware of the urge I felt to quickly give answers or offer suggestions and mm-hmm. offer an understanding and now that I'm more aware of that I think I refrain myself a lot more and yes uh, which I experience is, as the good thing to do because whatever you can say during a first session I mean not whatever but I think most of what you can say during a first session will not be heardable. Not at that point. Yeah. 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 My sense is that usually the patient is trying to vent as much as possible in order to decrease their anxiety. Mm -hmm. And we at the same time may experience an increase in anxiety trying to gather all of that and put something back yeah. for the patient which is too much in one session so yeah I appreciate the taking in and just allowing for the process to unfold as the consultation goes on but that's not always easy no it's not always easy I think there is a pull from the patient to get something from us mm-hmm. in order for them to feel satisfied and of course there is a push we may all experience to be the best therapist in the world of course which is another beautiful fantasy (laughs) (laughs) but it's a difficult one to get out of (laughs) indeed yes (laughs) okay 
Oh, and in terms of tuning, I just wanted to mention that I think a year or two ago, Psychology Today, the website, offered me to write my profile in French for people who are looking for French-speaking uh, therapists to have access to my profile in French directly. I understand, Edgar, that you did not receive such an email for Spanish. No, I did not. So I would really encourage people who know about because I, I went back to my profile and I can't see the option where um, I can write in one language or the other. So I would encourage people to actually write to Psychology Today and directly ask if you could have such an option if you speak English and another language because I think it helped me get people Mm-hmm. Because uh, you, as we said, like there are so many people on Sacred Today who mentioned that they speak French, and I guess just as many, or if not a lot more, who pretend that they speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if yes. you write your profile in your native language, it shows there's no discussion. Mm-hmm. People will see that you do speak the language they are looking for. Yeah. That raises another theme that we may be able to talk in a future podcast is how we promote ourselves through these online engines or websites because it's Psychology Today and others. They focus on different demographics or different interests. For example, there are some websites for therapists that are for people who would like to work with, let's say, sexual minorities. Or there are websites that are only for people who would like to work with low-fee patients. So there are different types of websites and mm-hmm. where do we decide to put our energy in terms of creating the profile says something about our practice and who will we want to serve. Yeah. yeah. So finally, Edgar, you recently decided to try to move to an out-of-network practice, at least partially. Yes. That's changed since we recorded the podcast. Correct. Do you want to share a little bit of your experience? Well, two things come to mind immediately. One is that if people are going to move to out of network, having been in network for a while, like myself, Mm -hmm. you cannot do that in a drastic way. So you have to think probably on a term of one, at, at least one year, probably two years or more to transition your practice. At this point, I have decided that I will take new patients through in-network if they are interested in doing more than one session a week. Mm-hmm. Because I sense that in those cases, being in-network helps the patient to keep a higher frequency for a longer period. I see. And those who are interested in doing only once a week, I don't do less than once a week, but those who are interested in doing once a week, I am trying to accept only people who can do private pay. So this is a midway between being in network and out of network. Okay. And how did it work so far? The difficulties is that when people approach me, I explain this. I used to do it through the media that they were using to contact me. For example, if they will call me, I will explain this on the phone. If they write to me, I would say this in an email to them. Then I realized that in that way, I'm foreclosing the opportunity to have a conversation. So I now... When someone reaches out to me, I create the space for the consultations. I see. So that we can sit down, talk about what they hope they can receive from therapy. And I talk also about how I work. 
And at some point we talk about the fee and what about frequency and what it would mean to be in network or use out of network benefits. Okay. It's a longer process for me now mm -hmm. than just saying immediately, this is how I do it. Yeah. For people who are outside of the U.S., there is this idea that in the U.S. you uh, um, register to a panel that uh, is uh, represents one insurance company. Correct, yeah. And you renew, I think, every year? Well, it's an automatic renewal. Once you are in a panel for a specific uh, insurance company, they renew that on a yearly basis. And to stop? If you want to stop, you have to terminate the contract with a certain amount of days before the end of the year. Let's suppose the contract is renewed on January the 1st. Mm -hmm. Then you have to send a letter terminating the contract 60 days before that. Mm -hmm. And that's when you are out of network with that specific company. Yeah, you really have to prepare things in advance. You do. Because you can't just say, oh, I'm out. I'm out of network, I'm done. And first, there are some legalities connected to that because mm -hmm. it's a contract. And second, those patients who are in network need time to adjust. Yeah. My sense is that less than a year is not possible. Yeah. It will take, it's a process that will take probably one, at least one year, two or three. And for s those who are wondering why wouldn't uh, someone in network just start being out of network with some patients and not others. The thing is, legally, if you are in a panel with a certain insurance, you are not allowed to see them out of network. No, you would be... Some patients who have this insurance, you can't see them out of out network. Out of network, yeah. Uh, if they want to use their insurance, it would be in network. There is no, at least that I know, there is no possibility of bypassing that. If someone knows a possibility... Well... Let us know. Maybe there's something in the contract that I, I'm not aware yeah, of. But yeah, but I, I think that that's what I heard all the time. Yeah, but, And Correct. so the prime is you, uh, you gather a lot of patients from one insurance and... Now you're dependent. Yeah, and, you yeah. Might, and if you stop being in network, it's not like you can stop being in network with some of them. It, you stop being in network with all of them. So this adds to the difficulty. Well, I guess this is it for today. I think so. And thank you for listening to us. If you have any question, feel free to write to us to discussions on psychoanalysis at pm.me or leave a comment on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and also the iTunes account. And leave us five stars if you liked it. We hope so. See you next month. Until then, this is Edgar Danielson. This is Rio Pierre. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.